The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we start today with a quote from the Diaries of Franz Kafka. This is an entry from September 23rd, 1912. Quote, How everything can be said, how for everything, for the strangest fancies, there waits a great fire in which they perish and rise up again. End quote. Not just for people or creatures or works of art or material things, but everything, including the strangest fancies. They perish in a great fire and rise up again. And in true Kafkan sensibility, it's not just that this happens, but it's waiting to happen. The great fire waits for everything, and everything trembles, whether it knows it or not, with the specter of this fate, which is oblivion, and hopefully a kind of rebirth, too. It's a wonderful quote, and it serves as the epigraph to Oblivion, a new novel by author Robin Hemley. He joins us today to talk about writers and Oblivion and Franz Kafka. That's all coming up today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Robin Hemley will be here soon. It's a fascinating discussion of his tour de force of literature, the literary world, author jealousy, author obscurity, and the potential of author oblivion, that anxiety-producing condition for any author who wants to be famous, wants to be remembered, which I think is pretty much any author, period. Why write otherwise? The book is aimed at, quote, anyone who has ever wanted to be an author, anyone who knows an author, anyone who is an author, recognized or not, and anyone who loves books enough to want to spend their afterlife reading forgotten classics in the great library of Oblivion, end quote. Oblivion is capitalized. We will ask him just what's going on with that conception and how Franz Kafka fits into it. But first, let's hear from a listener. This comes from Dear Listener Jim. Subject, Sylvia Plath Week. Dear Jack, I am an enthusiastic listener of your podcast and have been for years now. Thank you very much, Jim. I live in eastern Massachusetts, and as you know, there are quite a few literary figures that have lived in close proximity here. For example, 12 miles north of me now is where Louisa May Alcott lived, and also Emerson and Thoreau and Hawthorne. 53 miles east, as a Wisconsin crow would fly, at the tip of Cape Cod lived Norman Mailer and Tennessee Williams. The list is long. Okay, I'm going to pause there. I appreciate you orienting us, but to use a Wisconsin crow, well, Wisconsin crows, 53 miles, I get what you mean, but with a Wisconsin crow, that's going to depend on where that Wisconsin crow is in the journey of his life, because Wisconsin crows don't always fly straight, my friends. They fly for a mile or so, then they stop off at the tavern for a brewski, probably Miller Lite, but maybe Miller Genuine Draft or MGD. Then they take off again and fly straight, more or less, unless they spot a supper club, in which case they 
descend again and stop off for a brandy old-fashioned. Now they take off again and pretty much go to their destination, unless it's Friday, in which case it's time for a fish fry, or unless it's any other day of the week, in which case it's time for a brat and maybe a, a couple of brows. If it's getting late now and their home life is a mess, they'll smile a little too big and drink until they weep. If their home life is not a mess, if there's a spring in their step, and they're young and in love, let's say, they'll thank the bartender, give a generous but never extravagant tip, and leave the bar, planning to head into the air again, but actually staggering off to the side, into some bushes where they sleep things off. That's 53, 53 miles as the crow flies, is a journey worthy of Odysseus. If only there were a word for that. Just kidding, dear listeners, there is a word for that, odyssey, or, in this case, crodyssey. If only we could call it a craw instead of a crow, we'd have a crodyssey. Okay, the Wisconsin fish, oh, Wisconsin fish fry. That search is a codyssey. There we go, circle is complete. Thank you for coming, everyone, and please tip the waitstaff on your way out. And as you slumber in the bushes... Be thinking of Tommy Bartlett's water ski show. May it rest in peace. Or your old friend, Jack Wilson. Okay, back to the email. Jim says, but here's my observation. When I was in London a few years ago, I came upon a blue plaque on a stone building in Chalcot Square. The area was Primrose Hill near Regent's Park in London. As I was walking about going to a friend's house, I came upon a blue plaque which commemorated Sylvia Plath living there from 1960 to 1961. Now, according to the biography, she was there less than a year, probably eight months. Now back to Massachusetts. Three miles from my house, where I'm writing to you now, is the home where Sylvia Plath grew up. Elmwood Street, Wellesley, Massachusetts. At this house, which still exists, Largely untouched, there are no plaques or memorials or signs or tokens of significance, nothing that would indicate that Plath lived there and spent 18 years of her life there, according to biographies. Those were very important years for this growing poet. I bet no one who drives down that street on their way to Whole Foods realizes that the future poet laureate of England, Ted Hughes, camped out in that same backyard on Elmwood Street, when he and Sylvia were planning a cross-country camping trip of the United States and were trying to learn how camping works. My underlying question, Jack, here is, do we not honor our writers and our con contributors to literature in the United States as much as other countries? Does this contrast of a blue plaque attached to a building in the UK for an American author living in a different country and none at her childhood home here in her home country indicate or suggest a lack of cultural consideration for our literary heritage? Or is there another message that maybe we honor our writers in a different way? Anyway, would love your thoughts and all the best from Massachusetts. Yours, Jim. Jim, what a fascinating question. Those blue plaques, we do have some plaques in America. James Baldwin has one and John Steinbeck has one. They're usually brown, and they're not the same as those blue plaques, which are so inspiring. I love seeing those. Here's a literary figure. Let's celebrate them as a literary figure. They were here, right here. 
in this house, in this room, in this bed. This is where they, this is their desk. These are the steps they walked up when they came home. Let's celebrate poets. We're proud of them. I would bet, I have nothing to base this on other than a hunch. I bet there are more blue plaques in the UK celebrating American authors where they lived and where they stayed when they visited the UK than there are plaques in America celebrating American authors. Bravo, UK. Our hats are off to you. Ireland, probably they have something similar, I think. If I remember correctly, thanks to all of you remembering for celebrating writers and reminding us of their value. I could say, oh, well, we do it differently. We we read their books or we we've, we focus on their work instead of where they lived and so on. But I don't think that's true. I think it's a sign of us not celebrating writers as much as we could. Small thing, blue plaques, but they are helpful. We should steal the idea and the color too. Blue, perfect. But Jim, your email raises a larger point. Look, nobody's forgetting Sylvia Plath or Ted Hughes or James Baldwin or John Steinbeck anytime soon, plaque or no plaque. But there are authors being kept alive only through a plaque or an awards list or secondary source material, maybe they were famous in their day, but are now only famous as a friend of an even more famous writer. Maybe their works are out of print, out of fashion, out of print, out of mind. Maybe they're gone, disappeared, and maybe they never even really made much of a mark, even at the height of their fame. We love those stories of William Carlos Williams selling 12 copies of his first book of poetry or whatever it was, and then becoming famous years later, finally recognized, or someone like Melville dying in obscurity only to become a household name, even today, a century and a half later. Does that make Melville happy? Did it? How could it have? He wasn't there to see it. But would you say his life was a waste? Obviously not. Was it a waste for those writers who sell 12 copies and don't get the posthumous success? It never comes to them. That's a tougher question. And in the, is it the case that any writers truly do not want success? Who prefer oblivion to ongoing readership and fame? Who would want such a thing? Our guest today, Robin Hemley, has spent some time exploring these ideas. He joins us for a discussion of how writer jealousy, writerly jealousy, writer ambition... And the potential for Oblivion made their way into his novel about Franz Kafka, Oblivion, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet 
podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Robin Hemley, the author of 15 books of fiction and nonfiction. He's here today to talk about his new novel, Oblivion, which tells the story of a damned writer in search of posterity. Robin Hemley, welcome. Did I say that right? Robin Hemley, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks so much, Jack. So let's start with the book's theme or one of them. And I'll frame it this way. Writing is a difficult and lonely business that makes most people miserable. So it begs the question, why do they do it? And my guess is you yourself have wrestled with this question at times. You've probably had students and colleagues and and friends who have wrestled with it. Was that the genesis for the book? Well, that's it in part. Yeah, it is a question that has dogged writers, you know, probably ever since there have been writers. And I have hanging over my writing desk two quotes, one from George Orwell and uh, one from Kafka, which sort of address this. And they take slightly different tacks. Uh, Orwell says, all writers are vain, selfish, and lazy. And at the very bottom of their motive, there lies a mystery. Writing a book is a horrible, exhausting struggle, like a long bout of some painful illness. One would never undertake such a thing if one were not driven on by some demon whom one can neither resist or understand, for all one knows that demon is simply the same instinct that makes a baby squall for attention. And yet it is also true that one can write nothing readable unless one constantly struggles to efface one's personality. And that's from George Orwell's uh, famous essay, Why I Write. But then on the other hand, there's Kafka in his diaries who wrote this uh, slightly different tack the tremendous world I have in my head, but how to free myself and to free it without being torn to pieces, and a thousand times rather be torn to pieces than retain it in me or bury it. That indeed is why I am here. That is quite clear to me. Hmm. So for me, it's, it is a bit of a paradox. On the one hand, there are things within a writer that exert a kind of volcanic pressure yeah. that one wants to let out the way that uh, Kafka uh, elucidates. But on the other hand, yeah, sure, that everyone wants to make their mark, or a lot of us do. I mean, whether they're painters or actors or filmmakers or scientists in some way, or just, you know, make a mark with the our families, you know. And so this is one way of sort of finding one's place in the world is writing. Yeah, right. So there, I was thinking there were two 
possible reasons or two categories of reasons. And, and now I realize I missed a third. So the categories I was thinking of were you write for some kind of earthly reward, fame or fortune or uh, pats on the back or just feeling like you've, uh, you've made your own life better by doing this. Or, and then the second reason would be to have immortality of some kind, to cheat death by leaving something behind even after we're gone, that kind of thing. But you've added the third, which kind of makes sense because Kafka wanted all of his manuscripts destroyed. And I was thinking, well, where does he fit into this? But he fits in in that third category that I was overlooking, which is artistic or some kind of expression that just has to be gotten out in order to exist or in order to make sense of the world while you're here. It doesn't mean it needs to bring you money. It doesn't mean it needs to bring you immortality, but it's just something that writers have to get off their chest, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's room for all of those kinds of writers or mixtures of, of that. You know, I'd say I'm a mixture of all of that. I'm my my high school principal, when I was about 15, told me I should, uh, he'd like to invent a, a back padding machine for me. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not above the sort of crassness of, uh, of wanting attention, you know. And, and Joan Didion, I believe she said that she wouldn't have written a word if no one had paid her, you know, and, mm. and yet she's such a great writer. Right, right. So there are all these different motives, and many of them are contradictions. You know, at the end of the day, I think of writing as actually a, a generous uh, act and also an act that is in communication with other writers past and present. Mm, yeah. I'll add to Joan Didion, uh, my hero, Dr. Johnson, who said nobody uh, but a blockhead ever wrote for anything but money. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I'm a blockhead, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it is it is interesting. It also makes me think about writers who view it as sort of a vocation and they're productive because they're hard workers by disposition and they maybe grew up the the sons or daughters of ditch diggers or factory line workers and they just they have a, a sort of lunch pail attitude toward it of well this is I'm going to write every day because why wouldn't you work hard we're here to work hard that's all I can do it's just just so happens that I'm not good with my hands or I'm not good physically, but I'm good putting words together on the page. Is that, are those people in a, can we add a fourth category for people like that? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I think that though it's hard to write anything consistently without having at least some kind of obsession. Mm, yeah. So I would argue that even those people who start out that way, probably develop a kind of need and obsession to to continue. Yeah, right. Or it starts to show in their works that they're, they suddenly have gotten formulaic or the life has drained out of it. The interest, you can tell when their own creative spark is no longer there. Right. I mean, part of the reason I write is, I mean, a lot of my books are so different from one another. And I like to challenge myself with one book uh, after another. And so some of my books, I would say, they seem like they're written by different writers. And in a sense, they are. You know, they're written by myself 20 years ago and myself, you know, 30 years ago. Mm. And so, you know, there's always that, for, for me, there's an excitement in having a challenge and not writing the same thing over and over again. Right. Okay. So 
Let's move to your book, Oblivion. Tell us about the conceit of the book. What exactly is Oblivion? So I've thought of Oblivion for a while. I, I was thinking about you know how when there's a rock musician who dies, someone will invariably say he or she or they have gone up to that great rock band in the sky. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, heaven has, uh, or the afterlife has a big <laughs> rock band, but what about writers? You know, where do they go? Yeah. And I thought, what about the writers who never quite achieved the heights of fame? And I thought, well, you know, they go to oblivion, but they in oblivion, there is something that I decided was the cafe of minor authors. Mm. And the book follows this one writer who is based somewhat on me, or might be me, uh, or might be a kind of possessed version of me, who is still ambitious even after death, and who has this obsession with Franz Kafka. And uh, he meets an old friend in the Cafe of Minor Authors, and he um, is, is kind of surprised to learn from this friend that his great-grandmother Hannah who was an actor in the Yiddish theater in Europe, knew Kafka. And mm. so that's the conceit of it. And the, the book takes place in 1911 and 1912 in Prague uh, and features Franz Kafka and his best friend and sort of impresario Max Brod, mm -hmm. and also takes place in the Cafe of Minor Authors and involves Dybbuk's too, which are... De Jewish demons, hence that's why I said that this character might be possessed by one of them. So would you say this character after death, this narrator, is in a kind of purgatory trying to get into a heaven which would be a successful work? Is that what you sort <laughs> yeah. of have in mind? <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, yeah, uh, the denizens of this uh, cafe do all the things that writers do, you know, drink coffee and gossip and backbite and things like that, but also want to still have some kind of attention given to them. But mm. of course, it's kind of futile in the afterlife if you're not making any change on earth. But he hears that there are a couple of writers who have escaped oblivion and have actually gained earthly fame even after their death. So this is his aspiration as well. And uh, yeah, so he would like to join the pantheon of great writers, you know, including Kafka, who isn't anywhere near the Cafe of Minor Authors. Mm. And why did you choose Kafka? So I do love Kafka, and mm. I've mm -hmm. loved him for a long time. When I was about 14 years old, um, so my parents were both writers and publishers and editors, and we had this great library at home when I was growing up, and I would just pull books randomly out of the bookshelves. And one day I pulled out The Trial by Kafka. Mm -hmm. I think I was in 10th grade and we were supposed to do a book report on any book we wanted. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do a book report on The Trial. You know, little did I know what I was getting myself into. But I thought, okay, this is a really, this is a meaty book, but some other show off in class decided to do War and Peace. So he kind of stole my thunder. <laughs> But uh, but ever since then, I've been fascinated by Kafka, not just Kafka's writing, but who he was as a person. There's a, a lot of myths that surround him. And so I started reading his diaries and I read some biographies of him and uh, other things. And I realized that the public perception of Kafka and who he really was or 
who he seems to have been from what he left behind in his diaries and such and friends, uh, friends' reminiscences, was very different from the public perception. That is interesting to me because I've spent so much time with Kafka, I'm not sure I can disentangle the two, but I do know that the way we use the word Kafkaesque is probably reductive. So how do you view the, the general conception of Kafka and what is misunderstood by most people? Well, Kafka, you know, until he contracted tuberculosis, was, you know, physically fit. He was, uh, he had a youthful appearance. He was a handsome uh, young man. He, and, you know, when we think of Kafka, so I've been to Prague a number of times, and the first time I picked up this postcard of Kafka, and it showed this hobbled old man sort of lurching down a cobbled street with a cane. And that could be the farther, farther from the truth of Kafka. I mean, he he was once um, mistaken at a at a boat club for one of the um, workers there, and he was nearly thirty. But someone took him for uh, an attendant, this old man, and had him row him across the river. Um, and Kafka just said, "Okay, I'll do it," you know. And he was that <laughs> strong, you know. And uh, so he wasn't this this uh, sickly person before mm. he got tuberculosis. He also I believe he loved human companionship. He was always going to readings. He did give some readings in his lifetime. He wasn't the sort of wallflower that we sort of think him to be. Yeah. And that word Kafkaesque, I've been thinking about that a lot too. I think in some ways, to me, when people say Kafkaesque, they can mean anything, but what, they, they can just mean, oh, it's weird. You know, the way they... they often use the word surreal. A lot of red tape. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's how they're thinking about it is that it's uh, some kind of bureaucratic nightmare. That's, and and I think that's fair. You know, that's, that's fair that, that he does at least, you know, in the trial and some other of his works, he does deal wonderfully with bureaucracy. And, you know, one other thing that I think is misunderstood about him is that he's actually pretty funny. Uh, Everyone I know, who loves Kafka realizes that he had a kind of comic genius. It was very much dark comedy, but it was comic. And he would read portions of the trial to his friends and they would just sort of burst out laughing. They yeah. thought it was <laughs> Right. Which is very different from, I think, I think once you start reading Kafka, you see that. But I think a lot of people probably, if they've forgotten what it's like or they've never read it, then they probably just think of it as sort of unremittingly bleak and dark and there's no escape and that it's just relentless. Yeah. And I mean, there's some truth to that, too. Uh, one of the readings he gave in his lifetime in Munich, he did, there was, you know, some, at least one person who fainted when he read a story, <laughs> <laughs> which didn't play well with him. He was very upset by that. Yeah. I also have in my mind another version of of Kafka, which probably isn't fair because this wasn't intended to be a biopic or anything, but the Orson Welles version of The Trial where Anthony Perkins played the uh, Joseph K. character. Uh-huh. And it's sort of a, I think that can be a conception of Kafka too, that he's sort of twitchy and and nearly psychotic. Uh, we have such a connection with Anthony Perkins as being bizarre and, uh, you know, kind of a, a social misfit. And that doesn't seem to have been the case. No. Uh, I mean, he was 
tortured in his own way, especially, you know, with, say, around women, you know, with his uh, on again, off again engagement to Felice Bauer. He just put that poor woman through so much, you know, but but yeah, I don't think he was especially twitchy or anything. I see him as a bit of a kind of rebellious uh, character who loved things that his father, who was very much part of the Jewish bourgeoisie, would have hate it like Yiddish theater and someone who, you know, laughed and joked and was around cafe society. And a lot of what we think of as that sort of twitchy self, I think is more evident in his diary where he Mm. sort of let loose and he didn't expect anyone to be reading those at all. Right. There is also, I think something, I think it says something about us as grownups and maybe as just people who have lived life for a while, but also people who have spent a lot of time gloomily going through books and looking for answers there, and that kind of people who spend too much time in the library. But yeah. I'm thinking, if I told my my son when he was five years old, if I had told him, maybe I did, but it, I'm thinking if I had told him the story of the metamorphosis. And I started out and said, it's about this guy who wakes up and he can't go to work because he finds that he's turned into this giant bug. My son would have laughed out loud and would have assumed that it was this great comic story. But we all know the metamorphosis and we think of it as being sort of a a terrifying story and uh, the feeling of being trapped and the feeling of existential anxiety and part of that is because we we know it wasn't written as just a pure comic story but i i feel like we we sort of something about humans as they grow up start to think of life as being more full of trouble and woe than a child might yeah yeah i I think that's true i think that's a a really good point that on its outline and certainly spoken to a child that story would seem comic and there are comic elements to it. I mean, speaking of movies, there have been several metamorphosis movies, and all of them have a comic element to them because it's it's weird to see this giant bug. It's really hard to portray on the screen. In fact, I'd say that none of them do it well. Mm. But I don't think Kafka translates well to film. I, I yeah. haven't seen much that... Uh, that impresses me. I, I would really rather read him because I think our imagination does better in this case than, than cinema. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think the metamorphosis is the sort of the standard story that if anyone knows anything about Kafka, it's the it's metamorphosis, you know? And and yeah. and I think that that in some ways does him a little bit of a disservice because it's often thrust at high school students or you know freshmen or whatever as this great piece of literature. And you know, it, it doesn't engage a lot of people I think because it's probably sometimes not taught so well. And I feel that there are other stories that I think might be taught in in its place. I think I love Metamorphosis, but I just think there are other stories as well. And we shouldn't sort of confine Kafka to that, that as the sort of introduction to him. Yeah, The Hunger Artist would be one that I encourage people to read. And and that has the same kind of shift. It is definitely a comic story, but it's so dark. And it's so, I read it and I just get chills thinking, this is how we treat people and this is how we struggle. And it's so intensely sad. And yet I'm 
I'm chuckling. And I remember the first time I read it, I think I laughed out loud at the ending. I know it, it, it ends with a punchline. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it ends with a punchline and it's a brilliant one. And yeah, I've, I've actually been inspired by that story many times, but also I believe it was the last story that he, he was actually copy editing that story on his deathbed mm. while suffering from the late stages of tuberculosis. And ironically, he was being sort of starved to death. He couldn't um, swallow. And so imagine working on that story in that condition. Yeah. So this will, I want to mention one more thing and then we can take a break. This will uh, sort of cap off our discussion of what the public thinks of Kafka, courtesy of the uh, algorithms and data supplied by Google. <laughs> so I had mentioned, or, or I, you had mentioned some details about Kafka that I wanted to check. And one of the things you had said was that he had ridden a motorcycle. And I didn't know if you had made that up or not. So I was typing that in to check it into Google. And I was writing, I was planning to type, did Kafka ride a motorcycle into Google? But when I got to, did Kafka Google auto-suggested some potential things that it thought I was going to ask. And what do you think the top answer was? Boy, I have no idea. So um, there were a few things like, did Kafka live in Prague? Or things that I'm guessing students probably doing book reports probably uh, had to double check. The top answer was, did Kafka kill himself? Oh, wow. Which made me think it's just that that version we get of him is, uh, you know, like I said, relentlessly bleak and dark and that he was probably suicidal, which uh, was not always the case. Yeah, he was suicidal sometimes. So yeah, right. he, he, um, you know, right before his uh, breakthrough story, um, the, the, the story that sort of made him sort of realize his own potential, the judgment, he was in a very, very deep funk, but it didn't have to do with only with his his creativity, but had to do with some family problems that he mm. was dealing with. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick break and come back with more from Robin Hemley. Okay, so we ended that last segment with the question about uh, did Kafka kill himself, which people almost assume, and and then we started talking about his uh, immortality, literary immortality. But as I mentioned earlier, he sort of famously wanted his manuscripts burned. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I do think he was very much sort of a textbook perfectionist. Mm. You know, you know, perfectionists are often you know, the, it's hard to get to perfection and they, they just feel like they don't want to let go of something. And I think he was very much that way. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's why he wanted his manuscripts burned. But, you know, the, it's interesting to me that Max Broad, I mean, he wouldn't have come to worldwide attention if not for Max Broad, who was his best friend and literary executor. And when Broad brought out his work, the first thing he wrote was that Kafka had asked him to burn his manuscripts. Mm. And it's a 
kind of odd thing to put as the first thing that that you put out there. And the question is why? And so, you know, if you were really wanted to have your uh, manuscripts burn, you wouldn't make the person responsible for that, the person who admires you most in the world, you know, and Max Broad basically said, you know, if he wanted, really wanted to have his manuscripts burned, he would have had time and he could have just named someone else as a literary executor. Yeah, right. And was there a part of Kafka that thought his reputation could rise and fall on what had already been published or had come out? Or do you think he really just didn't want it, that he didn't want immortality or was indifferent to it? That's a really good question. And I think that it's a hard one to answer. I think there were a lot of contradictions in him. I really feel that that quote that I read uh, at the beginning captures him, that mm. there was these sort of worlds inside him that he they needed to get out. He didn't necessarily need to share them. When um, Max Broad brought him to a publisher, uh, Kurt Wolf, I believe, uh, who published a, a lot of uh, wonderful writers back then, Kafka reluctantly gave the manuscript to the publisher and said, you know, the, you, you would do me a great favor by not publishing these, <laughs> which is <laughs> so, so strange. You know, I don't know anyone, anyone I know who would say that to a publisher. Maybe, maybe we all should and make them want, want to read it all the more. <laughs> <laughs> do you think your book could have worked with a different kind of author, at its core, I was thinking of Herman Melville, of a, an example of a writer who longs for immortality, but has no reason to think he'll get it by the time he dies, even though he's written a masterpiece. Right, right. I mean, I suppose, but not for me. I mean, I'm mm. sure like this could be written by someone else. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I feel this connection to Kafka. And of course, it's a challenge to write about Kafka because he's you know, how do you write about someone who's been written about so much? He's like writing about Venice, you know? How do yeah. you write something new about Venice? But it can be done. And so I have been more or less obsessed with Kafka. I love his writing. I, I'm really interested in his life. And so for me, and also as a Jewish writer, I felt a connection to him as well. You mm -hmm. know, especially, you know, he had a kind of um, interesting ambivalence towards his own Judaism, which I found very fascinating as well. And so for me, he hit connections on a lot of different levels, you know. Also, I just think that, you know, he has that kind of, for me, that sort of romantic notion of writing as a calling. Mm -hmm. Even now, I mean, of course, that's something I felt when I was 20. But even now, I have a sense of that as something really important to have at the center of why I write. You know, my mother, as I mentioned, my mother and father were writers, and my mother was a well-known short story writer in her day, and then her star faded over time, as it does. You know, writing's an, a very much an up-and-down business, but still, well into her 80s, while she was even growing blind, she would sit and write, uh, and she would write every New Year Eve, she would write into the New Year as her sort of statement that I'm still here and I'm still writing. And that to me is really, that's something that I, I felt was a, a model and something that, that I believe that Kafka shared as well. Now, some people might hear that and think of 
a view of creative writing as being like therapy, that it's sort of it's it's good for the soul or it's good for self-improvement reasons or it, it right. helps to, you know, it's like being on the couch, so to speak. But I think it sounds like from what you've said before, you view it as more like uh, an act of generosity or communing with the great ideas and the great writers and artists of the past and future. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, for some people, writing is therapy, and that's fine, you know. But I've always said that, you know, uh, actually, therapy is a lot cheaper than writing. You know that that if you're that writing yeah. is, as therapy <laughs> is not not always the most cost-effective thing. You know that you know it's not something that sustains me. But you know there are aspects where you feel some. Uh, yeah, I'd say it's a, it's a lot of things, and there I don't think of it as self improvement though. I don't feel like after I've re- written a book, I'm a better person. Mm. You know, that doesn't equate with, and that's not why I write for sure. Yeah, do you think most writers and most um, uh, people who are want to be writers overestimate the chances or the immortality that their work can bring them? Well. Sure. Uh, But I think that's still good because, you know, you need to, in order to write, you need to start somewhere with some momentum and maybe it takes a little arrogance and maybe it takes, you know, a little defiance. Right. Uh, It takes a lot of defiance. But yeah. So, yeah, why not have I think having that ambition as a young writer or as a beginning writer is really great, is really good. It's not the only thing that can sustain you because as everyone knows, writers take a lot of knocks and yeah. you, know, you have victories, small and large and whatever, but I've never met a writer, famous or otherwise, who felt like they had received enough attention. <laughs> you would be shocked by some of the famous writers who feel, I mean, I, I won't name names, but my cousin was a literary agent in the 70s, 80s, and 90s and there was a very famous writer who everyone knows who would meet her in the the streets of new york and would say you know i don't feel that the literary establishment takes me seriously and it was the most shocking thing this is a person who you know everyone knows that person's books and yet they still had that sense of insecurity which i found amazing yeah well the insecurity based on my review of the history of literature the insecurity when you're talking about posterity is probably justified because (laughs) it's sort of like one writer from one country in a century might make it uh you know and we sort of will have shakespeare or we'll have you know but the the number of writers who just get lost to the sands of time is pretty incredible that's right. That's why they end up in the Cafe of Minor Authors. You know? Yeah. But what the way I think of it, I guess, is in this, I had, I say that the way I think of it, I only just came up with this idea as I was reading your book, but it's almost like buying lottery tickets. And you could be a, a Tolstoy at the end of your life and think, you know, I probably bought enough of these Powerball tickets that I'm actually going to win the immortality lottery. But right. for other people, maybe they're just holding one ticket and you never know if if that poem is going to make it into anthologies or your novel will be discovered by historians who pick it up and, and like something about it or it, it somehow makes it onto the, the small number of books that get read by high school students or, you know, you might make it. And it is 
in that case, it is like, uh, you know, the the great rulers who are building a city and want to leave something behind. And it is, as Shakespeare puts it in his sonnets, that I'm going to make my love for you immortal through this poem. Right. Yeah, it's um, it's a very fickle thing uh, and, and a very iffy proposition at best, posterity, you know, and it's not a good reason to well, it's not something that sustains anyone because you get far enough into your writing life and you realize there are other things that are as good, if not better, reasons to write. And, uh, you know, you you can't really worry about that because it's just completely out of your hands. You yeah. know, so I still love writing. I still find a lot of joy in it. And I find that the joy that I find in it is sometimes greater than when I started out at 20 or 21 and, you know, thought I was going to, you know, win a Nobel or something, you know, yeah. you know, that's not, that's not it anymore. And uh, it's not to say that I don't want, you know, I, I love attention. I still like that backpacking, <laughs> you know, but I, but at the same time, when I'm alone and writing, and thinking of the next sentence, it's great. You know, I, I, I've actually just found it's a little more liberating to not worry about that than to always have that hanging over your head. Mm. Maybe the healthy way to think of it is, I wish I could remember for sure who said this. I think it was Wyndham Lewis. His line was, what did posterity ever do for me? <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> I, I never heard that before. That's great. Okay, so I have a surprise bonus question for you. Okay. Are you ready? I'll do my best. After some surprisingly enjoyable dreams about becoming an insect, you wake up to find that you are still a human being. Disappointed, you rub your eyes, only to see that a small man with dark eyes and somewhat large ears is sitting at the foot of your bed. He tells you that you've been given a great gift. You are a messenger who can help alleviate suffering in the world. The catch is that you can only deliver one of two possible messages. The first message is to writers. You can address them all, successful and aspiring alike, and tell them something important about literary immortality and oblivion. The second message is to all who live with or care about writers. You can tell this group something that could help them better understand the writers in their lives. Which group do you choose to address, and what do you say? Wow, I love that question. I guess... Since I've already written the book for writers. Yeah, I was going to say, you could, <laughs> I thought you might say, I'll just hand them my book. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, no. I would address the second group. Yeah. Who live with writers because pretty much all writers know that the people who live with writers have a hard lot and, you know, have to make a lot of allowances sometimes for, you know, these poor damned souls. <laughs> and so so yeah. I would. I would just say to the people who are living with writers that the writers, you know, do love them, that sometimes they do um, sort of drift off. And, you know, there's a, always a sort of caveat emptor quality to being with a writer. And that is that the writer is not always present, but elsewhere. Kafka said that any kind of, I, I'm sort of paraphrasing it now, but he's, he said that intellectual labor tears one away from human society. In fact, mm -hmm. I think that that's exactly it. And I think that that's, it is ultimately a bit of a curse of the writer. And for the 
for the person who lives with the writer or the people who live with the writer, they have to keep sort of drawing that writer back into human contact. Mm. And it's not always an easy task, but so it's a really sort of push pull. I mean, I'm very grateful to, to my family that they have always been generous uh, to me and my obsessions and I've tried to return it in kind. Yeah. And writing, sometimes it looks from the outside like a narcissistic act. And why why aren't you just doing something to earn more money? Or why why do you feel like you, you know, are you going for the back padding machine? But right. it also when you told the story about the famous writer who still wasn't getting enough praise, writing makes you so vulnerable. And sharing writing, it's it's such a you're so exposed when you put a work of art of any kind out in the world. But writing, maybe more than anything else, you're saying this is what is in my mind and this is how I see things. And this is these are the emotions that are coming out of me and, and that I'm trying to share. And if people are dismissive or say they were bored or say this isn't as good as his or her earlier work or whatever the reason is that they don't like it, the writer can be. Uh, you know, it's it's like a rejection of the writer as a person. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that, you know, one can't generalize about all writers, but a lot of the writers I know are among the most uh, generous, sensitive people I've ever met. And so I think it's a fallacy to view them all as sort of selfish people who are, you know, insensitive. I mean, there's certainly those who, you you know, who are dismayingly insensitive, you know, great writers who maybe we've met who are disappointing in person. But I would say that most of the writers I know are truly sensitive, generous, supportive, and there's a really good community that I feel among my writer friends, and we do our best to uh, support one another. And that actually always makes me feel good. That's partly why I'm also a, a teacher. I love sort of helping younger writers or beginning writers with their work. And yeah, I do think that Ultimately, writing and reading is about human connection and communication. And that's something that I do think that that can make us better people. doesn't necessarily do it, but it can. Mm. Okay. Well, let's leave things there. The book is called Oblivion. Now, if someone is listening to this 100 years from now, I guess uh, the question is whether the History of Literature podcast has survived that long and is making your book uh, bringing you some immortality or whether the book gained immortality and that led people to seek out the and discover this this uh woeful little podcast and found it in some archive somewhere or perhaps the two of us are just going to <laughs> recede into the distance as the uh, boat pulls away from the shore but in any case robin emily uh i'm so glad you joined us and thank you for being here today on the history of literature thanks so much jack this has been really wonderful <laughs> Okay, there we go. My thanks to Robin Hemley, author of Oblivion, for joining me today. And my thanks to Jim for his email. And as always, my thanks to you, dear listeners, for joining me. You're the constant, you lovable, faceless pairs of ears. Or one ear, if that's how you listen. I'll take it. One ear, if that's all I... Get one ear. I will happily accept it. That's how Van Gogh listened to the podcast. One ear is fine with me. As long as it's connected to one mind, as long as the mind is beautiful, as I'm sure yours is. 
Gorgeous Minds, all listening to the podcast with two ears or one, depending on preference. Two ears and one mind is easier to pull off than one ear and two minds. But hey, who am I to judge? If that's your thing, you do you, singular or plural. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.